um, there's a verse that you see everywhere, Jeremiah 29:11. It's up on people's Facebook walls. It's in uh, Christian art on, their, on the walls of their home. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. People love it. People claim this as their own, and this passage does apply to you if you are a Jew in captivity in Babylon around the year 600 BC. That's who the promise was made to. It was not made to us. And we need to remember, we have promises, but that wasn't one of them. We need to read it in context. As, as we like to say, a text without a context is a pretext. You've got to know who it was given to. And it was given to people that were being marched into captivity. And remember who wrote this down? Jeremiah, who had, as we saw last week, one of the worst lives imaginable. And he died being taken to Egypt, or shortly after arriving. And the fact is, we don't know when he died, but we know he died either on the way to Egypt or in Egypt. He goes silent. History loses him there. This promise, I have great plans for you, plans to prosper you, was made to a people being led away into captivity. Now that's odd. But let's look at more of the verses there. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Notice that he starts that saying, I have great plans for you, plans to prosper you. And at the very end, he says, I'm taking you into exile. I'm scattering you, but I have plans for you. How are these people going to be blessed by these plans? By realizing that if they follow through and turn to God, they will be freeing their children and grandchildren one day. Not themselves. This is done for others. If they turn back toward God, he said, then it'll all be better. I'll bring you back. I'll prosper you. Those who heard the promise, it's very important that we get this, those that heard the promise would never be free. Not unless they lived a very long time because they were going to be away for 70 years. It was the people that would come after them that would be free if they dedicated their lives to turning back toward God so that the children could step up. Jeremiah, who wrote these words, also wrote Lamentations, a very remarkable book, a short book. Aren't you glad to get a short book after Isaiah? And, and uh, we're heading into Ezekiel, so break is over. But Lamentations, it's a very, very short book. And the word for it, the name for it, 
isn't Lamentations. It's hard to translate the name for it. We would probably, the closest you could get would be alas. But most accurately, it would be ah. That's the name of this book. Just like, no, that's the name of the book. Written in a very interesting way, but it's a lament. The temple is broken down. All of the gold has been stripped out of it. All of the furniture has been taken and either broken up or taken as treasure to Babylon. Some of it might be hidden in the baggage of those that are escaping to Egypt. We do know that uh, a couple of temples showed up being built, kind of temple light in Egypt uh, on an island, Elephantine, and there's another one there. We don't know how much they snuck out, but most of it is gone. The walls of Jerusalem are gone. The priesthood is over. And here's what makes it most tragic. It didn't have to happen. It didn't have to happen. When you read through history, and I, I like history, and I, I'm, I don't consider myself really a history geek because I don't get that deep into it. But as I read back through history, it's amazing. Almost every single crisis you hit, you could say it didn't have to happen. Had people taken this step and this step, that wouldn't have happened. And yet, it happened. And that's what makes it more tragic. I don't know if you noticed this week when you read Lamentations, but God's voice is not heard in Lamentations. He doesn't speak. Just like happens to us whenever we're on our knees, shaking and upset and tearful and not knowing what to do, we often don't get that booming voice, do we? Now, I have people that will tell me, and God spoke to me, and I don't doubt them at all, but God doesn't do that to me in that way, not vocally at least. He shows me bits and pieces, and I'll look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, there's where he was. But it's hard for me in the presence. We wonder, what do we do with the situation we're in? And it, it seems so unfair. It seems so arbitrary. Last Friday, my wife and I were, were honored to get to see our oldest grandchild, our grandson, graduate from kindergarten. And that's a big deal. By the way, let me just, a little aside here, it's not on the notes. Um, it, it's, it's become kind of stylish to say, when I was young, we only had graduation for high school. We didn't have all this preschool and kindergarten. Stop. <laughs> they need ceremony. We need ceremony. In America, how do you know you're an adult? You can buy a gun and alcohol and tobacco. That's not a good ceremony. <laughs> we need ceremonies that say, we now acknowledge that you are this old. We now acknowledge that you have reached this milestone. And as we're there, I start getting text. My phone's on silent because I'm a good Christian. I'm giving you time to become a good Christian. But Mark Street, who, I mean, if there's a man with a better heart, I've never met him. His grandchild is being taken, same age, to hospital with bacterial meningitis. And my heart's broken because I'm looking at a healthy boy and thinking, if that was Lucas today, I'd be a wreck. 
I'd be on my knees saying, why God, why? It seems arbitrary, doesn't it? Mark, I saw a big group around, and I've lost track of where you are, Mark. Could you wave at me? Are you, there you are. I saw a big group around you. I, I hope and pray your, your granddaughter's doing better. Um, she is good, good. Well, God bless her. In fact, let's just stop. Let's say a prayer, all right? Our Father in heaven, Mark's granddaughter was the second person of that same age I heard about that same week with the same disease. Please root this out. Please heal these babies and protect our families. Restore us once again. We pray in the name of Jesus and the whole church says, amen. Now, lamentations, these are our words for these times. It's, it's a remarkable series of poems. They're five poems. This is one of the few books where the chapter divisions make sense because they are each five discrete poems. They are acrostics. Now, an acrostic is where you start each line with the next line in either a sentence or a word or most often the alphabet. And if you go back and you're looking and say, well, it doesn't do that to me, it's Hebrew. The Hebrew, uh, alpha, beta, all, all that, you know, Dalit, gamma, all that sort of thing. It, it goes through its own uh, series. But one, two, and four each have 24 verses because that's how many letters in the Hebrew alphabet. However, chapter three has 66 verses because each letter starts three lines. But I want you to think about the thought this, this took as Jeremiah composes this these are our laments. These are our screams toward God. The fifth chapter, by the way, is also a poem, but it's not an acrostic. It seems that Jeremiah was trying every way he could to pour out his heart, his lovesick, broken heart to God, just like a teenager might do today. Now, why do I pick on teenagers? I'm not. Parents, let me explain something to you. The brain comes online at its own pace. And it's, um, it's a physiological thing. It's not psychological. You cannot rush it. It comes online at its own pace. One of the most frustrating things about being a teenager is having emotions for which there is no language yet. You can't connect them. So how do they connect it? Through poetry, through song. That's why on their phones, there are 50,000 songs. And on yours, there are six and three of them are cover of the other three. <laughs> You've learned your language. You've got your language. Their emotions are so powerful, they're looking for words. And when somebody else provides those words, it is, it's, a, it's a gift to them. And that's why that they'll read poetry or they'll, they'll, they'll go try to look for anything. They'll, they'll do a free verse poem about their love. Then they'll do a haiku. Then they'll do a sonnet, which has bizarre rules. Then they may write a song. This one's a ballad. This one's an anthem. You know, I, this, 37 years ago this weekend is when I met Kame. I was traveling through the Colorado mountains and, and saw her there. And it's interesting because my songs are all different than her songs, you know, and my songs are, are from a different era. I'm four years older than her, but also different country and different place. And so we, we compare songs. You know, whenever I say, what song do you think of 
every time, whenever you hear it, you think of me, and, you know, she thinks Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, if I had a hammer, and, and I'm going, um. <laughs> but she, she, uh, she has her songs, and they mean something to her. I have mine, and they mean something to me. That's what this is. If you didn't know it, go back and read it again. Won't take you long. These are different kinds of songs trying to tell God, this is what we're going through. Do you, can you get this, God? Do you understand this, God? The very center of the book, theological and thematic center, is Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24. Because of the, great, of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. What an incredible statement of faith in the dark. Little kids don't like going to bed, do they? Because it's the end. It's shut down. When they wake up in the morning, they're so happy to see a morning that they, well, let me put it this way. Adults have a routine. They wake up, they think a bit, stretch a little bit, look at the television maybe, finally get out of bed, say, ouch, crack their bones a bit. And then they go, they have this whole routine. Kids don't have a routine. We're up. And that's why they're all of a sudden in your bed going, what are we doing, what are we doing, what are we doing? Okay, right now we're playing the quiet game. <laughs> One of these days, they will learn that darkness is followed by light. Another day comes, and they'll take it for granted for a while, and then they'll grow old like us and begin to wonder, how many more of these lights do we get? I was um, asked to speak somewhere recently, and they, they said, what's really on your heart right now? And I said, I'd like to talk about believing in the light when you live in the dark, because I think we need to hear that more. Because a lot of you are living in the dark. You love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, but your life is a train wreck that you didn't cause. So what do you do? We have faith in God that he is our portion. We will wait on him. The first chapter pictures the people of God as a weeping widow. And you need to remember, I mean, our widows, we need to love them, care for them, surround them. But widows back in that day had no safety net no insurance, no um, Medicare, no nothing. They were, they, in fact, most of them couldn't even own their own property. They were homeless when they were widowed. And so, Lamentations 1, we are a widow who's lost, who've lost everything. Husband, family, home, property. Now we are sitting there wondering what is going to happen to us next. Overcome with misery without protection and hope. Chapter 2 says, we need as a nation to take responsibility for our situation. Chapter 3 speaks of hope, that this punishment will be for our good eventually. Don't we try that as well? Well, maybe this will help us out one day. Maybe we can learn from it. Chapter 4 is just sadness, the lamenting of his church, his temple, his religion, his life, his city. Chapter 5 is a prayer 
dear Lord, forgive us one day. If you can't forgive us today, forgive us one day. Every generation has taken this book and applied it to themselves in some way, and that's what you're supposed to do. And every generation has been convinced that things are worse today than they have ever been in the history of time, and you're wrong. Read history. As bad as things are today, they're still a lot better than they used to be. We have a lot more safety built into our systems. Every generation also thinks, oh, we're in the last days. Well, you're in your last days. But the, the last days, nobody knows. Every generation thinks it's them, and every generation's been wrong so far. And yet, we as a people need to acknowledge our own sins. Our debt is immoral and crippling. Our society is celebrating all the wrong things. Our government is making it harder and harder for Christians to practice their religion freely. And you think it's bad here, you ought to go back to Britain. It's harder there. ISIS is on the march and retaking territories and cities that many, many Americans died to make free. Some of our own cities have burned this year with rioters and looters. We could go on and on. So what is our response? That's what I want to get to. What is our response? Should it be fear? Should it be anger? Should it be despair? Should it be weeping? No. Those are our feelings. Listen carefully. Our response cannot be the same as our feelings. When 9-11 hit, we were living in South Carolina, right by the beach, thinking that we were just going to coast now. I'd done what I was supposed to do. Then 9-11 changed everything. We had neighbors around us. Now, I have an odd hobby for a minister. We, we, my son and I, we did competitive shooting. And I know it's an odd hobby for a minister, but it keeps the elders' meetings shorter. So um, <laughs> I'm good with it. And our neighbors, we had neighbors that thought we were nuts and called us gun nuts and the like, even though we've never hurt anybody. Well, I haven't. He became a Marine. I think that was his job. Uh, but I, I um, you know, we're, we're peaceful people. They thought we were nuts. And then 9-11 hit, and a few of them started, you know, their husbands were trapped because no flights. And I had one lady look at me and goes, what are we supposed to do? And I said, the first thing, we don't react in fear. We talked about that for a while. And then she said, should, should I get a gun? I went, no. <laughs> She's sitting there doing this. I'm going, no, no. We got you. Uh, we'll cover you. We're fine. Fear and love and pain and grief. God made your heart feel it. Feel it to the utmost. Don't be afraid of your emotions. But your emotions are not your response. We need to understand the difference there. Let me be clear. God created you in, your, in his image, and that means you've got a heart. You've got, an em, you've got emotions. Yay, you. Look at creation, and you can see that God does not mind turning loose and, and, and letting go. Look at the fun he had making stuff and the way the animals dance. Feel what you feel. Love outrageously. Cry when you need to cry. Dance when you want to dance. 
Christians have had a long suspicion of emotions, and especially our religious tribe. I can remember very clearly, remember I grew up in the 60s. Um, it's debatable whether I grew up, but I lived during the 60s and, uh, and the 70s, and long hair was a mark on men, and uh, we were told that long hair was a sin, and that was, you know, they preached hard on it. And I remember one time at a church, a young man was called to lead a prayer, and he got up, and his hair was almost half covering his ears, which meant he may as well have been a girl and put on a frock, as far as my church was concerned. And he started the prayer, and he just sighed, and he said, Dear Father, and he, he began to weep during the prayer. And the preacher beside me snorted in disgust and said, Makes me want to throw up. We're afraid of emotion. We don't even know how to clap because we've been afraid to. Somebody asked me what it was like living in Nashville. We, you know, we live outside, but people don't know. I said, Nashville is a city of 850,000 white people who clap on one and three. <laughs> and if you don't know what that means, you're part of the problem. <laughs> Amen, Mark. <laughs> I said, Amen, there's a testifying. We... Um, we go to churches. We, here we, we share our building with African-American churches, and, and I wish we would learn how to worship from them and feel the emotions that they feel and, and show what they show because, frankly, I think they're, they're responding more appropriately to God than we are. Now, don't manufacture it. Don't, don't try to fake it. But we're afraid of clapping and raising hands and swaying and calling out. We even tell our boys, real men don't cry. We tell our girls to be sweet, don't rock the boat. Stop it. You are created with a heart. Lamentations is the heart laid bare. That is, you're allowed to feel. You're created to feel. But feelings, emotions are our energy not our response. And that's so very important that we get this. I've had men destroy a week or a month or whatever of their life by words they use to their wife. And they'll say, but I was, I, it, I didn't mean it, I was just angry. Well, feel the anger, but your response is never anger. Use the energy. Jeremiah lamented at length. He gave full vent to his sadness and his sense of loss, but his response was a call to repent, a call to prayer, facing toward God, returning toward God. Instead of sitting in a closet, shuddering in despair, his response was faith. When we see what's going on around us, go ahead, feel concerned. Be worried if you want to be worried. I'm in the middle of writing a letter to my son. I've been writing for over a month, apologizing to him. Because I said, my generation is not leaving you a better world. That was, we were supposed to. We were supposed to leave you a better world than we got. We didn't. And we, need, we all bear responsibility for this. Be, be aware, things are tough. But that letter won't fix anything. It wasn't designed to fix anything. Understanding the situation is supposed to give us energy to fix things. 
to move forward. Look at Ephesians 4, for example. Verses 26, 27. In your anger, do not sin. By the way, it doesn't say, when you get angry, you sin. No, no. When you're angry, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Have you ever heard the advice, never go to bed, you know, to newlyweds, never go to bed angry? Seriously? Sometimes it takes a while. You might want to go to neutral corners. It's all right. But what does it say here? When you are angry, it is energy to change what you see. When you see hungry people in a land of plenty and you get angry, fix it. Feed them. When you've got $5 in your pocket and you see somebody that needs some of it, give them some of it. Fix it. When you see a situation, use it as energy to fix things. I don't know how many people that I've talked to that lament the cause of the world, or the, the state of the world, and I'll say, what are you watching on television? And it's everything from Dancing with the Stars to something like this, and I'm going, you don't know what's going on, and they still let you vote. You're part of the issue. You're part of the problem. We need to use our energy to change things. I will never tell you how to vote, ever. It's not my job. I'm not going to tell you which party is right because I don't think they are. I think you've got to pick people. And you might be like some of my brothers and sisters in Christ who just say, I can't even vote. All right, fair enough. But all of those people I know of, they don't sit there at home mourning about the cause of the world. They're not voting, but they're on the street feeding, caring, changing things. They're using their energy. Now, I, I vote still. So you make up your own decision. But remember this, your emotions are energy to cause you to change things. Men don't normally talk a lot unless they are trying to establish dominance or um, if they're trying to solve a problem. I'll have women that'll, you know, whenever men's retreat, we'll ask men, who's your best friend? They almost always name their wife. We tell the wives that, they'll say they're lying. We'll say, well, why would you say that? And they'll say, because they never talk to us. Well, they don't talk to anybody. That's what, you know, men, men don't do that. And then the women will come back with, oh, but when we were dating, we talked and talked and talked. And yes, he was solving a problem. He wasn't married to you. Now he is. Problem solved. <laughs> no, it is an ideal. But he used his loneliness for his energy to speak. Some of us are of a certain age, and we remember that old song that went on forever, There is a sea which day by day... Remember that? And it was all contrasting the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. One receives water and passes it on. The other receives it and doesn't. Because it doesn't pass it on, it goes dead and stagnant. If you let anger, love, and sadness, and all, all it does is turn into bitterness and frustration. It turns your soul stagnant. Use these emotions as energy to get up and change. Beethoven took his anger, pain, and loss and turned it into music that still deeply touches millions. Van Gogh, many of you don't know this perhaps, but Van Gogh used to be a pastor. And he was defrocked by his church because he kept giving his money away to the poor. 
And so he painted out his emotions and his pain and lilies and wheat and sunflowers. And he took it and turned it into art. Horatio Spafford took the tragic death of his four daughters and turned it into the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Robert Pierce took his frustration and broken heart at the hungry children he saw in China and turned it into world vision. In our own town, some of you saw racial divides and said, enough is enough, and got us working with Franktown and Hard Bargain, and God bless you for that. Chris Whitney here in town saw the hungry that everybody else said wasn't, that they, they're, not, they're not in Franklin. Franklin's a rich place. And he took that, that passion and he created one generation away. Go ahead and feel. But then use that energy as a drive to move you forward. Jesus did it. So did God. For God so loved the world that he sat and thought about it and pined about it constantly. No. He so loved the world, emotion, response, that he gave his son. You see? Jesus turned his tears into action. He cried over Jerusalem, but that wasn't enough. He used that to propel him into Jerusalem and toward the cross. Jeremiah caused the people to turn to the, their loss and tragedy into repentance and a change that will one day bring their children a blessing. A lot of verses to read here. Chapter 3, 17 through 32. I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone, and all that I had hoped from the Lord, I, I remember my affliction. My wandering, the bitterness, the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I will say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust, there may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Feel, dance, cry, rage, shake, but then take it to God and see what he can do with that energy. Do not let your emotions be the response. They are there to fuel the response. So what should our response be? You know how we'll end. Our response is the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Give them your other coat. Walk with them longer than they ask you to. Empty hands. Open arms. Love is our response. 
Faithfulness is our response. Hope is our response. Would you stand with me, please? Before we're led by our final, uh, in our final song, I was trying to find a preposition there. Uh, Before we're led in our final song, remember that all that remains when cities fall, when the sound of taps has gone quiet, all that remains is all that was really there when they were still playing and standing. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these, say it with me, is love.